Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator this morning. Today is Sunday, December 8th, 2013. The share ID number for Friday, December 6th is 5588. This morning's presentation is Chapter 9, The Family Afterward. The Family Afterward describes the many challenges and readjustments facing the family of the recovered alcoholic. Joining us this morning are seven recovered compulsive overeaters who will bring this chapter to life through their experiences, as well as stress the importance of living by spiritual principles as a means of restoring trust and integrity with family members. Our panelists this morning include, in this order, Robin B., Julie R., Marita, Marcella, Sharon R.S., Rebecca F., and Katie F. Each panelist will concentrate on two specific pages and develop the text, sharing their experience, strength, and hope. We invite everyone on the line to have their big book open to page 122 as we begin our study of Chapter 9, The Family Afterward. Let's get started now on page 122 with Robin B. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, Vision for You. This is Robin B. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And I'm going to start with the first paragraph. I'm going to read it out loud, and then I have a few things in there that um, stood out for me. Our woman folk have suggested certain attitudes a wife may take with the husband who is recovering. Perhaps they created the impression that he is to be wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. Successful readjustment means the opposite. All members of the family should meet under the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. This involves a process of deflation. The alcoholic, his wife, his children, his in-laws, each one is likely to have fixed ideas about the family's attitude towards himself or herself. Each is interested in having his or her wishes respected. I'm going to stop there. So I've sobered up with food. I'm working my way through the steps. I'm learning to trust a sponsor, trust my fellow recovery buddies, trust my higher power. And here I arrive at this chapter, The Family Afterward. And right up front, this chapter tells me that I am not supposed to be expected, I'm not supposed to expect to be treated with kid gloves as I recover. Um, The second sentence, perhaps they created the impression that he's to be wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. And then it goes on to say successful readjustment means the opposite. So I read successful readjustment to mean um, staying abstinent having a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from compulsive overeating, adapting to life's terms. And what I'm hearing here is that I'm not, um, that my family doesn't need to adapt to me anymore and that my recovery depends on it. If I am to recover, I need, I need to depend on the fact that they don't adapt to me the way they used to. I don't know about you, but my family was very affected by my compulsive overeating. Uh, when I became abstinent, I was, I'd was i been married for 25 years. I had a husband and four kids who had been adapting 
to me and learning from me in all my dysfunctional glory. <laughs> um, I taught them how to keep secrets. I taught them how to take care of my emotions by, by repressing theirs. I wasn't able to handle confrontation, so I'd attack first, and then I would uh, dissolve into tears, which was very confusing to them. And they were sometimes, they had to be overachievers to please me. Uh, I look back now and I see that I required them to be in friendships that, that they really didn't want to be in because I wanted the parents to think well of me. They lived with my self-pity. There was resentment, anger, fear, disharmony. In the third chapter um, on page, let's see, no, in the third paragraph on this on this page, page 122, I can read, Years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic. The entire family is to some extent. Till I've been surprised at the character defects um, that I've uncovered as I've gone through my steps four through nine, the ways my family had to adapt to me in order to function. And, you know, now they may not be completely happy with me. I'm going to meetings. I'm taking phone calls at inconvenient times. My life is really changing. I've, I've decided to upset the apple cart, and they may not be completely on board with that. I'm changing the rules on how our family interacts. There are going to be feelings about this, and, you know, this is as it should be. And isn't it completely understandable? I've been, you know, whipping them around for 25 years, and now I've decided to, to do things differently. So, you know, there's going to be some unhappiness about that, maybe some happiness too because they see that things are changing for me, but some unhappiness because there's a good chance they're going to be inconvenienced by, by what I'm doing in my life now. This trip that I'm taking is not just about me. Others will be affected by what I'm doing. Um, let's see. In the first and second chapter, um, I want to go back to each one is likely to have fixed ideas about the family's attitudes towards himself or herself. Each is interested in having his or her wishes respected, and each wants to play the lead. It's not each trying to arrange the family show to his liking. So from my point of view, this chapter is going to remind me to be patient, to trust the process, to trust my program, to use my new tools um, to practice restraint of pen and tongue, which I've had to come back to over and over and over, to use my network and my sponsor to dialogue about misunderstandings in my family, um, to learn how to communicate honestly and carefully. Something that I am really getting now is that my family is often not the the proper place to go to talk about my fear or my anxiety or my insecurity because it just makes them uncomfortable. Um, it stresses them out. It causes them um, disharmony when, for me, it may just be a fleeting moment, and that's what my network and my sponsor are for. So while I'm learning all of this, I can be patient with the family members who probably learned not to trust me in my eating behavior you know, I don't know how many times I told them I was going to be starting something new and different and everything was going to change, and then two days later I'd be back doing the same thing. You know, that's from following a food plan, following a diet, exercising, turning over a new leaf, keeping a clean house. Um, 
I taught my family to not trust me. So on page 123, I'm going to move on to a different paragraph now. It's in the second full paragraph there. It's the last two sentences. It will take time to clear away the wreck. The old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones. The new structures will take years to complete. And this might be hard for them to accept. In some ways, they want me to um they may want me to shape up. They might not like like the fact that I'm going to take missteps because you know I'm human. I might get some feedback which I don't much like to hear about the progress of my program. And this is where I can use a concept on page 74 in the big book. The rule is we must be hard on ourselves, but always considerate of others. The goal here is to become, uh, my goal is to become a new and improved role model, a new and improved mother, wife, daughter, friend, and building a new strong foundation might take some time. But what I know now is that it will happen if I stay the course and have patience with um, the people around me. So in the first paragraph on page 123, it says, we'll hear about some of the obstacles a family will meet. Suppose we suggest how they may be avoided, even converted to good use for others. You know, life is a moving target. This chapter is meant to help me maneuver through when things get tough because all those reasons I ate, all that stuff that I used to use as excuses to eat, I still have to learn how to deal with them. And now I need to learn how to deal with them without resorting to some substance to take away this, the discomfort. Um, you know, these things that I'm learning about adapting to a family and not expecting them to adapt to me, they teach me how to w live in the world unselfishly. And then I get to pass on those new skills to others as I sponsor and I share with my fellows. So I'll pass. Thanks for listening. Robin, thank you very much. Let's turn the page now to 124 and welcome Julie R. on the line. Hi, I'm Julie R., Recovered Compulsive Overeater from California. Um, I'm going to be going over pages 124 and 125 and we're lucky um, to have four principles on these pages, and I'll point them out as I go. The first sentence, Henry Ford once made a wise remark to the effect that experience is the thing of supreme value in life. You know, I understand this statement to mean that my life events leading up to my recovered state is of utmost importance. It's who I was in my disease. It's what happened as a result of working these steps and who I am today. My supreme value is all of my experiences, including my lows, which is when I was dying from all the aspects of the disease, physically, mentally, and spiritually. And then I get to talk about my highs, which are aspiring to live up to God's expectations of me. Today I have a real relationship with my creator, not a part-time one like I did before. These are the things that I can share with a still-suffering still compulsive overeater. The next sentence that is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. You know, my past is mine. It's a roadmap. It's of Julie's adventure. No matter what happened, it's still who I came from. I mentioned that we had four principles in these pages, and the next sentence um, is the first one. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. You know, today my greatest asset is humility. This is something that I never had nor even wanted because I thought it was weakness. 
But when I returned away a year ago in November, I realized I had been living in pure ego in more ways that I could count. My past can be turned into a positive, though, now, today, to help another. Sharing my experience, and I'm not talking about sharing my thoughts or my beliefs, but I'm talking about my actual real-life experiences and how I had a spiritual awakening and how today I have come to have a real relationship with my great spirit. I, you know, I can't share anything that I haven't lived. I can't just share something I've read. Uh, the next sentence, this painful past may be of infinite value to other fam- families still struggling with their problem. I am no longer changed to my pride and my fear, which wanted me to hide while I was in the disease. It was all about pretending. You know, when I would wake up, it's like, what do we, would I be today? How can I manipulate people, places, and things? And that is how I lived. Today I am free. I am free from their power, and I am able to share my past because I am no longer ruled by it. When I admit my shortcomings to my creator and to another, I become free. I no longer have to have shame. I only have gratitude. I only was able to get through these trials by having my great spirit aligned with me inside and out. The next sentence, we think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not. And when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. You know, this is a place where I get to share my mistakes. And I need to do it in a way that will not destroy my family and my own reputation. There is a time and place to share, and God will show me, and he has showed me today what I need to say. I must use discretion on how much I want to disclose based on how I can be helpful to the still-suffering compulsive overeater. I am learning to seek my great spirit's wisdom before I make decisions, albeit small or big. And God led me to pick these two pages to share on because I truly believe that nothing happens by accident. The next sentence in the text, showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Prior to coming to OA again a year ago in November, I had used OA as a diet with group support. And that's when I thought abstinent was the only thing, being thin. I was recovered. You know, I had lost a lot of weight, and I started to blame those around me. I blamed my husband for my unhappiness. My resentments grew and grew, and my problems with my marriage bloomed. My thinking was flawed because I was in the disease. I was in the food. My life was ruled by flawed thinking, not by God's grace. I told myself, oh, you deserve better. And I focused on my wants and desires. I justified my inappropriate actions, hence my infidelity. God brought me through this. Being a completely different person today, only by God's grace and God's help, I get to share my experience, my transformation from a selfless, self-centered, ego-driven woman to a woman of honor, dignity, and grace. And thank you, Katie G., for those words. I went from living in the problem to living in the solution. Again, I am free from my past. The second principle in the text is cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. I owe my life to my creator. I was dying in all three areas. Physically, I weighed 277 pounds. I was purging several times a day. Mentally, I was on my way to a nervous breakdown. 
and spiritually, I was separated from my great spirit, and I was unable to walk on the red road. Today, I live with my creator, my great spirit, who resides in me, and I am reunited with my husband. I no longer create havoc and leave a trail of despair. I share my dark past so that I could be of service. The next sentence. It is possible to dig up past misdeeds so they become a blight, a veritable plague. If I focus only on the problem in my acts, the doom and gloom will not be able to help anyone. I need to share that I was able to become recovered by my relationship with God. The next um, couple sentences, I'm going to end with one of them here. A few of us have had these growing pains and they hurt a great deal. I have had this experience. I came from a place of ego, self, not from a place of cleaning up past hurts. The next sentence, husband and wife have sometimes been obliged to separate for a time. Uh, In most cases, the alcoholic survived this ordeal without relapse, but not always. I was not this lucky. Even though I was maintaining a 150-pound weight loss, I was not recovered. The obsession with food and other things had not been removed, as I didn't know what the real root of my problem was which is selfishness and self-centeredness. I was still in charge, not God. I was running the show, and it was all about joy. I lost sponsor after sponsor as a result of my inappropriate behavior. The more I carried on my obsession of the mind, I was led back to the food because I had no real relationship with God. The next sentence. So we think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. You know, this is where I have to be very careful when I'm sharing. I have to make sure I'm sharing with recovered people and sponsors because our rule is never attempt to save ourselves by harming another. Today, my great spirit led me to share today how I went from a broken, self-reliant, self-centered, ego-driven woman to the woman that I am living today. Um, We come to another principle We do talk about each other a great deal, but we almost invariably temper such talk by a spirit of love and tolerance. Bottom line, anonymity. We share only to help others. Gossip is a conversation that has gone wrong. The next sentence is our fourth principle. We observe carefully is that we do not relate intimate experiences of another person unless we are sure he would approve. If I know that someone has had a similar experience, I do not share that. But what I can do is call that person myself and ask if I can get out their number. We do not assume. The next sentence. We find it better when possible to stick to our own stories. A man may criticize or laugh at himself, and it will affect others favorably. But criticism or ridicule coming from another often produces the contrary effect. Page 84 says love and tolerance is our code. My sponsor shared with me to ask these three questions all the time. Is it loving? Is it kind? And is it necessary? These are the questions I ask before I share. Early in my program, I had been on the either side of gossip. Again, this is my experience. And thank God I don't live that way today. The next sentence. Members of the family should watch such matters carefully for one careless, inconsiderate remark has been known to raise the very devil. You know, I look at the disease as my devil. You take the D out of it and what you have is evil. And my disease, it always will be pure evil. And contrary to my great spirit, which is pure love, 
all good and powerful. You know, we need to protect the family with what we share. The last sentence I'll share about, we alcoholics are sensitive people. It takes some of us a long, long time to outgrow that serious handicap. I added a long, another long because that's me. Uh, after returning to OA a year ago, November, I learned what my real problem was, self, 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 and more self. And it was only then that I was able to move into the solution. My disease wants nothing more than for me to be in charge because that means I will have put my creator aside again. And instead, I returned to OA. I got a big book sponsor. I listened to a vision for you every day. And I work and I live the steps. I have had a spiritual experience awakening. I am no longer ruled by the obsession of food, spending, or inappropriate behaviors. Today I am recovered. My great spirit is alive in my soul, my heart, my head, and my body. As Bill said, God is or God isn't. God is nothing or God is everything. My creator is everything today. So thank you, and I will pass. Thank you, Julie. Now let's turn the page. We're on page 126 and welcoming Marita to the line. Good morning, Vision for You. This is Marita, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Virginia. I, uh, I want to start at the, at the top of the page, which is sort of half a paragraph. So I want to start back on 125 where it says, Many alcoholics are enthusiasts. They run to extremes. At the beginning of recovery, a man will take, as a rule, one of two directions. He may either plunge into a frantic attempt to get his feet, to get on his feet in business, or he may be so enthralled by his new life that he talks or thinks of little else. In either case, certain family problems would arise. So they're going to discuss these over the next several pages. So the big book says we run to extremes. Oh, yeah. That is me. And um, this is the chapter on the family afterwards. So this is talking about people who are in recovery. Um, In the beginning, a recovering person, that's what it says, you know, it's likely to go in one of two directions. So this is reminding me of my tendency as an addict with an alcoholic brain to have strictly black and white thinking. I'm either all in or I'm not there at all for you. Um, and one of my old ideas that I actually had to write down in my fourth step, one of, my, one of the concepts that I had to get rid of was this idea that if I can't be the best, I don't want to participate. I don't want to play at all. Um, this perfectionism, that if I can't be perfect, then I must be a complete loser. So either I'm completely in this white area of perfect, or I'm, I've thrown myself back into a pit of despair in the black darkness. But honestly, life is full of the grayscale. And um, this big book is teaching me that I need to live in that gradient, in the balance, where all of the interesting shades of gray occur, and that I am human. And I have to allow myself that. I have to allow myself that I can make mistakes and forgive myself for the mistakes that I have made, do make, and will continue to make. And that 
opportunity that I've given myself to forgive myself is the very thing that allows me to forgive other people. And in my life, I used to only want to blame other people, and I would beat them with the same stick of perfection that I beat myself. And I have been learning to put that guy down and to understand that that is my real problem, that this obsessive thinking that I have to be the best or I can't even show up, that aspect of my diseased mind is just broken. And I don't have to beat myself up about that either. I just have to accept it. I just have to say, that's, that's, a, that's a quirk in my thinking, and I'm noticing it, and I'm letting it go. I'm putting it down, and I'm accepting that I'm a child of God, and I have a right to be here, as do we all. And that, that is opening the door for me to have a much more peaceful life. And um, so let's, let's move to the, to the first thing that they're going to say. We think it dangerous if he rushes headlong at his economic problems. So in, the first, in that first paragraph, they're saying that either the, the new guy is either going to go try to get himself on his feet in business or he's going to go heavy into 12-step work. And so they're, they're talking about the guy that wants to get into fixing his money problems. And certainly my experience has been I've had some money problems. Um, when I was in, deep in my disease and my codependency with my husband, I was letting my husband manage all of our money situations and, and do the stocks and all of this stuff, and I pretty much just let him have free reign, and I, didn't, I abdicated my responsibility towards that. And we lost a lot of money. And whenever I would do the taxes every year, I would understand what had been happening. But up until that point, I wouldn't even look at it. I was unwilling to even notice what was going on. And that was part of my hiding in the food and part of the anxiety that I was trying to cover up with the food was all of this stuff that I just had in the back of my mind an inkling about, but I wasn't really looking at squarely and seeing how what I could do to solve the problem. So now in recovery, I am um, working uh, very hard at my job to help us become financially solvent and, uh, and God is helping me, and it's definitely occurring. You know, life, life is unfolding with ease in this respect. But um, originally, when I first started at this, just like my ability to be an extremist in obsessing about food, I could be extreme in obsessing about my work. So I could go from alcoholic, foodaholic, to workaholic. You know, I've got that compulsive uh, uh, tendency. I have that habituation that I must continue, continually watch and put down. So with, with overwork, you get really tired. And when I get really tired, I get really cross. I become snappy. And, um, and I become despondent. And that's what they're talking about in this paragraph. They're saying that dad may be tired at night and preoccupied by day. He may take small interest in the children and may show irritation when reproved for his delinquencies. If not irritable, he may seem dull and boring, not gay and affectionate as the family would like him to be. And the people, mother, may complain of inattention. 
they are all disappointed and often let him feel it. Beginning with such complaints, a barrier arises. He's straining every nerve to make up for lost time. He's striving to recover fortune and reputation and feels he is doing very well. So I want to talk about this barrier that they're saying is arising when, when, this, uh, when this process occurs. So a barrier, I think of a wall and of a separation. In the dictionary, one of the definitions is any obstruction, anything which confines or which hinders approach or attack, a kind of fence, a wall for defense. So this wall that is being erected by these emotions, the family reacting to the person who's being despondent or, or angry or tired, and also at the same time thinking that they're doing their job, that they're doing the best they can, right? So there's this wall that's coming up. And any time I think of that, I think of separation. And the separation that I feel that is at the root of my problem is the separation from my higher power. So any time I'm not fully connecting, I'm not facing and being on with my higher power, I know when I turn away that I'm, I'm flipping that light switch and my my juice is going off, you know. I, I don't have the electricity. I don't have the power. So this wall that they're talking about is one that we need to constantly watch because God shows up in my life in every single person I interface with. And if I can't be on for them, if I can't be connected to them, then I'm letting myself down and my higher power down. I'm not, I'm not being that person that my higher power would want me to be. And I love that our code is love and tolerance and understanding, and that that is the principle that I continually need to work with, especially in my family. My family is the toughest, the toughest group of people to relate to, uh, recovering and, and program, um, but the most rewarding. I can, I, I, I can let go when, when I can let go of my resentment and my blaming and my complaining myself against a member of my family, then I get such peace. I get such good energy back, and I get the job done anyway. You know, my, One of my old pet peeves is the dishwasher. My poor dear husband is not he's, – he's dishwasher challenged, okay? <laughs> a lot of people are. And I've given him clear, clear-cut directions about how to load this thing. <laughs> and bless his heart, he tries because he puts the dishes in there, but it just doesn't work out to my specification. So I used to, that used to bother me, and I used to get angry about it and resentful about it and bang my dishes around and fix it all up. Now I look at it and I appreciate the fact that he tried and that he was willing to do his best, which still isn't up to my specifications. So. What I do now is I enjoy reloading the dishwasher that he's begun. I enjoy setting up things just how I want them to be so that they actually do get clean and so that, that we run it with a full load instead of half a load because of how everything is, is mucked around in there. And I don't berate him for it. I appreciate that he is working this with me, that he's doing the best he can. And I appreciate the opportunity that God's given me 
easy, and it's, and it's never done. And so you can't really see the solution. You can't really see the end product the way you can with clean dishes. So this is a practice for me. I enjoy this doing the dishes now. And um, now I have all this great energy and gratitude toward my husband instead of blame. And that's that inner peace that I get, I can bring to other things in our relationship. And that's, I do believe that's the key to, this, to how this stuff works. Internal reactivity changes into a response that is held in place by my holding tightly to the hand of my higher power while I work, work through this life and everything that he presents. So let's move on to the next thing. Um, I wanted to talk about Okay, I want to talk about the, um, the, the, the bottom of the paragraph there. This sort of thing can be avoided. Both father and family are mistaken, though each side may have some justification. It is of little use to argue, and that is the God's honest truth. It is of little use to argue and only makes the impasse, the impasse worse. And here's the wall again coming up, right, an impasse is like a blind alley um, or a road that there's no escape from, no egress. So we don't want to continue to build this separation between ourselves and our loved ones, ourselves and our God, ourselves and our business partners, our country, everything. We need to continue to try to plug back in. The family must realize that Dad, though marvelously improved, is still convalescing. So it's giving us reasons why the family should be grateful that he's working it as well as he can and, um, and to uh, overlook his crankiness, depression, or apathy. Um, and here is how they're telling us the recipe of how to get there from here, that these things will disappear when there is tolerance, love, and spiritual understanding. So that's always the principle that I need to bring into every relationship I have every day, every moment of every day, bring that with me. And that makes the difference in how my life unfolds and how I experience this life. It changes everything. And the head of household ought to remember that he is mainly to blame for what befell his home. He can scarcely square the account in his lifetime, and that's true, too. I have to understand that I'm here to take responsibility for my life as it has been presented to me and not to worry about what's fair and what's not fair because life isn't fair, but life is about how I respond to the circumstances that I find myself in. And this over-concentration on financial success is dangerous. That's the second time they've said that in these two pages. And now they're going to tell us the next key. Although financial recovery is on the way for many of us, we found we could not place money first. For us, material well-being always followed spiritual progress. It never proceeded. And that has been my experience also. I, you know, for as screwed up as my finances have been, my, you know, pushing against that wall 
with all my personal effort and strength of will, never solve this problem for me. It's really about bringing it to God and asking God what he would have me be and doing the next right thing. And inside that process, miraculous things have happened. I am no longer in debt, having lost $300,000 in the stock market and double mortgaged our house back when I was in disease and being $70,000 in credit card debt that was $5,000 a year in interest alone. I am no longer in debt. And God has made that happen, not me. My husband doesn't work. He doesn't want to. He told me this summer he was quitting. And that hasn't changed the, the fact that I can still make our family's bills get paid at the end of the at the end of the month. And sometimes I'm really close to the line. But it's working and that's not because of me. It's because of it's because of my higher power. And uh, I no longer am up all night worrying about it because uh, I know God, I trust God will take care of my family. And it is, it is my experience that that happens, that my life unfolds smoothly and with ease when I allow my higher power to work through me and to show me what my next right thing to do is. So I think that my time is up. I'm sorry if I overspent it. Um, thank you so very much for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you very much, Marita. Let's all turn the page. We're now on page 128, and I welcome our next panelist, Marcella. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> My name is Marcella. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, everybody, for being in the line with me. Um, these two pages, 128 and 129, when Leah asked me, I wonder if you have any experience in these two pages and if you can relate to them at all. Um, I just laughed because these two pages describe me to the T. On, on the top of the page 128, um, the book describes a person who has been suffering alcoholic torture through food and in my case, also alcohol and psychiatric pills. And then we found hope, we found goals. I mean, we really literally start coming to a vision for you, get a sponsor with the steps and miracle of miracles. I'm not overeating. I'm not even hungry. I'm shedding the pounds, and I feel happy and content. Is it a surprise that I cannot talk of anything else? It's a vision for you in the morning. Alcoholics Anonymous for lunch, and the big book for dinner, and on the weekends a retreat. <clears throat> and that's my life, and I cannot think of anything else, like a good addict that I am. So what happens? What happens is that I forget, and this is the, this is, this is the part of the book when Bill addresses the whole family, not only the alcoholic, the whole entire family. And it comes after two wives because the wives, our spouses are the closest people to us, right? In some cases, we used to overeat with them. In some cases, we used to diet with them. And in, in, in many other cases, we, we just, you know, just we share our food because we live in the same place. And um, 
So now we're recovered and we're eating in a different way and we're doing different things with our spare time. Of course, everybody's affected, but I'm the one who has been blessed with the network and the direct connection to the program through the meetings, to a vision for you, and in my case, to my face-to-face meeting, big book, um, Study of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I forget that my family doesn't have the network that I have. But the only thing here, <clears throat> well, what happens is that at the very beginning, the whole family attended the meeting, the, the wives and even the kids, and they would gather in the kitchen where we, you know, in the books of history of AA, that they would gather in the kitchen and they would drink coffee and donuts and only a small portion of the meeting was for the alcoholics only. So the wife didn't have to be jealous of where, where's my husband, what is he doing, who is he was hanging with and, what, and what, what ideas is he collecting in this place because the wife knew other families. So if you have never been invited, you as a whole family, to an AA meeting, consider yourself invited bring your husband and your kids and bring everybody. Weekend meetings, open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous are family meetings. And, and everybody has the chance to meet others who are trying to live these spiritual principles and this way of life. Bad enough is for us to, in some cases, not attend to um, bring our own food to restaurants, for example, or, or you know, with certain dishes are cooked for certain holidays or tradition, we don't eat them and some people's feelings get hurt. So invite invite your family to an open meeting of alcoholics anonymous on the weekend and try to share this beauty and these wonderful ideas with other people because that's what we've been told in this book. So it goes then on the on the half of the bottom of the page of one twenty eight that the families get jealous. Of course, of course they get jealous. Before we spent all our energy and all our time and all our money dieting and at the gym and with the personal training and with the next new fat to lose weight or to control our eating. And now that we call ourselves recovered, we spend all our time on the phone sponsoring people and reading the book and, and, and face-to-face meeting or listening to the recording of a vision for you. And it's recovery day, morning, and night. Well, that's my life. So, of course, people get jealous. Of course, your family will get jealous because because now we don't have time for them again. So, before in the in the book, we um, there are many, many different names for the experience of higher power. And in the book, it's defined in many, well, it's, it's written in many different ways. One of them is the great reality, the broad highway. Well, the great reality, that's God's will in my life. Now, granted, the great reality oftentimes comes with a pile of dishes that need to be done, a bunch of laundry that needs to be folded, um, a grocery list I need to attend to my, my family and my family affairs, that cat litter needs to be cleaned, and because I am the erratic, headless chicken that I am, sometimes I have the cat litter in front of me, my abstinent breakfast in front of me, and my husband telling me what needs to be done today at the same time, and what comes first. Well, that's a tough one. That's a tough one because because I need to take care of myself in order to be to offer anything to others, but 
unless I'm not leaving in 10, 11, and 12, and I don't have the discipline to sit down and make a plan for the day so that I can sit and consider my plans for the day, my whole family will suffer. So in page 129, it tells us what is going to happen if the family cooperates and what is going to happen if the family condemns and criticizes. Let me tell you one thing. I mean, I've been blessed in many ways because I'm also an alcoholic, so I don't need to, I don't need to keep translating or making sense this book because it applies to me, period. But what happens when the family condemns and criticizes, I've seen it in others, and sometimes in my dear husband, who doesn't have the problem of overeating, he tries to flatter me with a box of chocolates. Or he tries to celebrate me by bringing me to a fancy restaurant. And, 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 and if my family condemns and criticizes, they say, well, they, don't, they, don't, they won't understand. But worse than that, they won't want to understand. And this is where we have to remember that it's attraction and not promotion. I have to behave in such a way, in such a way that my dear husband sent me to my meeting and said, what, are you invited to be one of the speakers on a Sunday morning? Please, by all means, I'll give you the time and the space and the conditions for you to do service because I want to keep you as you are. I'm enjoying the way my, the Marcella that I have in my house today. So, and then my friends, when I entertain my friends, I'm the kind of alcoholic and compulsive reader that doesn't keep um, addictive foods in my house. My, my friends love coming to my place because they know that I'm not going to feed them junk. I'm going to feed them good food prepared with love. But I, with the help of you guys, I'm learning to be of maximum service to everybody so that my family, and what I mean by family, is pretty much everybody that I see every day. My students in my in my classroom, I'm a teacher. Um, my dear husband, my two cats, they're part of my family. My sponsees, whom I talk every day. And, and, and the people that help me to stay in this path, even though I don't talk to you, but I listen to you every day in the recording. So that's my family. Now, if the family cooperates, incredible, wonderful things will happen. What is going to happen? That my family is going to be attracted to this way of life. And they're going to say, what are you reading in that book? What is the prayer that you're saying today? Who's that friend of yours that comes to the house and is happy all the time? How did that woman lose the weight? And they're going to be attracted and will be able to spread the message which we badly need. Because this wonderful message of revision for you, we study, we devote ourselves to study this book and apply to our food problem, needs to be spread. I absolutely love that the previous speaker addressed her um, struggles in another side of, of her life. This book is being translated to 47 languages and it's being read every day by people who have all kinds of addictive behaviors that include food, alcohol, psychiatric pills, drugs, um, working, financial troubles, everything. It's a message worth spreading. 
And I could be talking about these chapters for like five hours, but but I won't push my luck. Thank you so much for inviting me to share with you. And let's keep this gig going. And with that, I'll pass. Marcella, thank you very much. We turn to page 130 now and welcome Sharon R.S. to the line. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, Vision, for you. Glad you're all on the line with me. This is Sharon, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I am very happy to be talking about the family afterward. And I said to myself, you know, God has a sense of humor because I have been dealing with family these last few uh, days and last couple of weeks, and it has since uh, Thanksgiving and the Thanksgiving vacation. All of my siblings and uh, we all got together because my mother is ailing, and we thought, well, this may be the last time we'll be together. And it was, I kid you not, it was dramatic. It was drama. It was painful, and. Then I come home, and it just opened up a lot of things that my husband and I then realized that we needed to deal with and face. So it's really interesting that we're talking at this level about the family afterward, and I'm, I'm glad to have this opportunity. The first paragraph says that the world is spiritual make believe have eventually seen the childishness of it. Those of us who have spent much time in the world of spiritual make-believe have eventually seen the childishness of it. And this this chapter, this paragraph is so powerful. I want to come back and end with it. So I want to go and look at the other points that that stand out in these two pages and then come back to this paragraph because it's so powerful to me. And it's where I lived for so long and where, by the grace of God, I've been able to see some growth and also where I'm seeing a lot of painful uh, realities uh, uh, that I'm having to accept even now. So in the second paragraph, it says, whether the family has spiritual convictions or not, they may do well to examine the principles by which the alcoholic member is trying to live. What this is saying, of course, is that what we have as we recover and as we work on our recovery is something that we, well, first of all, we don't have to be ashamed of of dependence upon God, dependence upon the spiritual life. It is something, these principles will be of value for anyone who works them, including our family members. So we should proudly live according to these principles in in all of the affairs of our lives and all of the relationships that we live by. We should take these principles and hold fast to them, continue to study and grow in them, knowing that we have a way of living that will benefit anyone and everyone. In the next paragraph, it says, this means trouble unless the family watches for these tendencies in each other and comes to a friendly agreement about them. 
what is that referring to? That's referring to the fact that as we recover, as we come into recovery, we will change. And when we change, it puts a distortion in everyone else. Everyone else has to move. And it, particularly in our immediate family, when one person is ill, the other persons have to be different. They have to hold up the, the uh, family in different ways. And so when we get recovered and come into the new life that we're living, everything has got to change and we have to realize and watch for the the stress that we may put on our family members who have to then change because we've changed. And this is referring to, it gives the example of the uh, mother who has been taking care of the family and then the, the father gets recovered and he wants to be the man of the house, but she's been playing both roles. And then all of a sudden, everyone's a little bit resentful. The kids are used to listening to mom and ignoring dad. But then when we get re- with, with recovery, then that all changes. In my family, one of the things that I, as I got recovered, I realized that there's some things I was doing that I really shouldn't. For instance, I was running the whole household finances. And I really was not the best person to do that. And I had to accept that and had to give that up. The other thing that I realized when I recovered is that I had a lot of resentments about the role I played in the home. I, I, I have a kid who has special needs, and I felt like, and so I stay home. I stayed home to take care of him. I made that my first priority. I was being very noble, and I was the martyr, and I was sacrificing whatever I wanted to take care of my kid and my family. And that was subconsciously what I thought. Secretively, I had a lot of resentment because I wanted to be in the world. I wanted to be living out there, doing big things and creating big changes in the world and being significant in some way. And so I had to accept that, first of all, I was not in any condition to be out there because I was one sick puppy, physically, mentally. I just was sick. And so I couldn't be out there if I wanted. That's where that, in the first paragraph that I'm, that I'm going to get back to, it talks about that world of spiritual make-believe. That whole world of make-believe, that fantasy land in my head. And and so I couldn't be out there if I wanted to. And I had to accept that I'm here in this role, partly because I have a disease, because I'm sick and I need recovery. And secondly, I'm here because I need it here, because this is where God has me. And and my family does need me in this role. And I may not like all the, I really just, can it just bugs me that I wash clothes one day and the next day 
there's a big, huge pile again. It's like I never get done. It never ends. The dishes are never done. The laundry's never done. The floor gets cleaned, and two hours later, there's dust or something. And, and it seems like thankless work. My husband goes and does big things, and he gets big things done. But I do the laundry. Poor me. And so I've had to get over that as I've recovered. And I've had to accept the, those responsibilities to my family. And I'm learning, still learning 12 years into recovery, to to find joy in what I do, in what I provide. And also... I've learned to manage my money so that sometimes I can get someone to come in and help. And sometimes I do barter for the things that I don't like to do. So I found ways to accept that. And I've also, as I've recovered, found ways to go out into the world to do the things that I believe God has called me to do and play a role in the bigger world while still maintaining my home and my great responsibility that I have here. And looking at, uh, finally, I'd like to look at the um, the paragraph that reads at the very beginning, the couple ought to phrase, phrase, uh, frankly face the fact that each will have to yield here and there if the family is going to play an effective part in the new life. And so, excuse me, it says, Father will necessarily spend much time with other alcoholics, but this activity should be balanced. And what it's telling us here is that our family really does need to be our priority, our our first priority, particularly in my case where I'm the homemaker primarily. But we must, the the father, it says, which is the alcoholic, the addict, must be free to work with other alcoholics, with other sufferers who share our disease. I had to, from the very beginning, put as a priority, of course I'm taking care of my family, but right up there, I had to be sponsoring. I had to be giving service. I was working in intergroup. I was out there uh, doing these things because I needed to be recovered. I needed to be working with others in order to be recovered. We had to I had to make that a high priority and we all do whether you have uh work outside the home or not. We have to find that balance because our salvation is in working with others who share our disease and we have to bring that reality into the our family life where our family understands that this service is part of our recovery. And without this service, without working with others, uh, as our fellow says, without, if there is no you, without you, there is no me. We are in this together and we have to be working. I know I had to, and the big book tells us that we must. In my last minutes, I want to go back to that first paragraph. That means so, so much to me. That And I want to, let me read it to you. Those of us who have spent much time in the world of spiritual make-believe have eventually seen the childishness of it. The dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose, accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. 
we have come to believe he would like us to keep our heads in the clouds with him, but our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. That is where our fellow travelers are, and that is where our work must be done. These are the realities for us. We have found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. And this is, you know, I was saying where the great need to work with other, with our fellows. I want to just briefly talk about my, um, what I have realized, this world of spiritual make-believe. On page 32 of the of step two, in the 12 and 12, it talks about uh, this life that, um, it says that to most AAs, it, it talks about the alcoholic who means well and tries hard is a heartbreaking riddle. That was me. I meant well. I was a person who loved to help other people, but I was constantly stepping on their feet. And even this past weekend when I was with my family on the Thanksgiving, my brothers, and I thank God that they were able to tell me, said, Sharon, you sound so harsh when you speak. And they wanted to hear me, but I had a harshness that I needed to to work on. And I'm, by the grace of God, I have submitted to working on that with the help of my higher power. But it says that we try hard and it's heartbreaking. And the answer, there is a solution, it says, to these people who, who uh, there, for too many of us, there has been just, who have been just like him, have found this riddle's answer. The answer has to do with the quality of faith rather than the quantity. We supposed we had, and I'm going to be wrapping it up here, we supposed we had uh, been serious about religious practices and when upon honest appraisal we found we had only been superficial. And in, and also we had wallowed in emotionalism and had mistaken it for true religious feeling. This really was where I was coming from when I worked, came into the rooms and I over the last 12 years have been working and, and my recovery has been about keeping my feet on the ground while keeping my head in the clouds of, of God and of spiritual recovery, living in the real world and not wallowing in, in any kind of self-centeredness and selfishness. But it says here that for in both cases, we had been asking something for nothing. And I was asking something for nothing. And what I have realized in keeping my feet solidly on the ground is that a price has to be paid for this recovery. And page 14 in my, and I'm wrapping it up, 14 says, simple but not easy, a price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of light who presides over us all. So I had to realize my humanity in my recovery, in my family. I have to realize my humanness, that my recovery is ongoing. 
it's not an instantaneous thing. I am continuing to recover one day at a time, and I have to be sensitive to my family members, sensitive to my own recovery, keeping my feet solidly on the ground while keeping my head in the spiritual recovery hand-in-hand with my higher power. And with that, I pass. Thank you very much, Sharon. And now, to develop pages 132 and 133, we welcome Rebecca S. Thank you, Leah. Good morning. I'm Rebecca F. from Connecticut, a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater, and honored and humbled to be asked to speak this morning on pages 132 and 133 of the big book. I'm going to actually start at the beginning, at the end of 131. Alcoholics who have derided religious people will be helped by such contacts. Being possessed of a spiritual experience, the alcoholic will find he has much in common with these people, though he may differ with them on many matters. If he does not argue about religion, he will make new friends and is sure to find new avenues of usefulness and pleasure. He and his family can be a bright spot in such congregations. He may bring new hope and new courage to many a priest, minister, or rabbi who gives his all to minister to our troubled world. We intend the foregoing as a helpful suggestion only. So far as we are concerned, there is nothing obligatory about it. As non-denominational people, we cannot make up others' minds for them. Each individual should consult his own conscience. I used to, uh, First, I want to mention that I looked up the definition of derided in the Big Book Dictionary, and it said, laughed at, ridiculed, held in contempt, and mocked. I used to think, my religion is better than your religion. Now I don't judge other people's religious beliefs. The common denominators I share with all my friends and fellows in OA are the illness of compulsive overeating and that we are possessed of a spiritual experience. I embrace all of you and am moved by your individual faiths, beliefs, and practices. They help me to have a deeper understanding of my own conception of my higher power and allow me to be a part of exactly the way I am. Now that I am comfortable in my own skin, I am no longer afraid to approach other people and engage with them in conversation. One example of this with regard to clergy people is that I told my pastor about my experience with OA and offered to be a contact for him to refer people who might be suffering with this malady. A second second example is that I recently found myself in the company of a friar, robe and all. We were both by ourselves in a very long, not-moving line at a wake. The thought came to my mind that I was being given an opportunity to have an audience with a man of the cloth, so I engaged him in conversation. After ascertaining that neither one of us actually knew the deceased, I asked him if he could shed some light on why someone who was in the prime of his life would be taken from this earth. We were two strangers of different faiths, passing the time, talking about God and the meaning of life and death, rather than avoiding eye contact or, at best, 
may be talking about the weather and feeling self-conscious. Back to the big book. We have been speaking to you of serious, sometimes tragic things. We have been dealing with alcohol in its worst aspect. But we aren't a glum lot. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. We try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations, nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. When we see a man sinking into the mire that is alcoholism, we give him first aid and place what we have at his disposal. For his sake, we do recount and almost relive the horrors of our past, but those of us who have tried to shoulder the entire burden and trouble of others find we are soon overcome by them. When I look back at myself when I was active in my disease of compulsive overeating, I liken those 67 excess pounds to carrying a sack of bricks around on my back. They weighed me down physically and spiritually. The toll that weight was taking was serious and tragic. My health was deteriorating and so was my outlook on life. I literally felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. I was responsible for everything and everybody, and I was coming up short. My way or the highway wasn't working for me or for my family. Fast forward to today, abstinent and working the 12 steps as they are outlined in the big book. My body is healthy and right-sized. God has freed me of the obsession to engage in addictive behaviors. I now let my higher power, whom I call God, Discipline me and do for me and for others what I could never do on my own. It's hard to relax and take it easy while carrying all those bricks around. Through recovery, I discover I can relax and take it easy. I let God do the heavy lifting now. That frees me up to have fun. And even when I reach out to those to help those who are still suffering rather than trying to control them, I am to simply pass on the information that was and continues to be so freely passed on to me. Back to the big book for the next two paragraphs. So we think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. Outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic experience out of the past. But why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. Everybody knows that those in bad health and those who seldom play do not laugh much. So let each family play together or separately as much as their circumstances warrant. We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. We cannot subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears though it once was just that for many of us. But it is clear that we made our own misery. God didn't do it, avoid then the deliberate manufacture of misery. But if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. I always wanted the holidays to be more fun and more meaningful, but I didn't know how. I was too busy stressing out being the caterer and overeating and feeling like I didn't fit in. Now I thoroughly enjoy the holidays. 
We play games at the table after dinner. We get very animated and excited and laugh a lot. This past Thanksgiving, right before it was time to sit down at the table, God directed me, I believe, to Google Thanksgivinga prayers and to quickly find a grace that fit our eclectic group of dinner guests to a T. That led to some other loving gestures of thankfulness, and the 18 of us had a collective, heartfelt, hand-holding moment together. Many of us were moved to tears. My father-in-law tried twice, but he was too choked up to speak. A little later in the kitchen, I was able to coax out of him what he'd been trying to say. And that evening, my sister-in-law told me she doesn't ever remember seeing my husband this happy. I used to cry a lot. (laughs) I guess I still do. (laughs) I don't cry very much anymore. (laughs) Only when I'm happy. Now when I misstep, when I act selfish, I shouldn't say only when I'm happy. (laughs) I cry when I'm sad, too. Uh, When I act selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and afraid, I can recognize it and do something about it. I run my behavior through a tenth step, and the results are miraculous. This process has brought my husband and me much closer together. We marvel at how much better our relationship is as a result of the 12 steps. We know it's God's handiwork because left to our own devices, which is the way things used to be, we weren't able to resolve our differences easily and effectively. Even if we quote-unquote got over an argument and moved on, we carried resentment and self-justification around in our heads and in our hearts. My husband used to say, I'd light the fuse and step back and wait for him to blow. It's difficult for a family to put up with an addict. So with that sack of bricks lifted from my back and the reassurance that the first 100 or more recovered alcoholics tell me and my family they are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free, we are able to just be just that. Our 21-year-old daughter is coming home from college on Thursday, and she and I have plans to play together. We are going to a yoga center for the day. I wouldn't have had any interest in doing that when I weighed 180 pounds and couldn't move my body with ease. I wouldn't have even known about the opportunity because it's a friend in program who invited us. I don't know if this has anything to do with my recovery, but the other night I asked our 25-year-old daughter if she had a good time the night before, and she said, I always have a good time. Now, this is a person who has special needs and used to frequently say, I hate my life. Back to the big book. Now about health. A body badly burned by alcohol does not often recover overnight, nor do twisted thinking and depression vanish in a twinkling. We are convinced that a spiritual mode of living is a most powerful health restorative. We who have recovered from serious drinking are miracles of mental health, but we have seen remarkable transformations in our bodies. Hardly one of our crowd now shows any mark of dissipation. So I used to be obese, and now I'm physically fit. I used to be weak, and now I'm strong. I used to be sedentary, and now I'm active. I used to have aches and pains, and now I have vitality. 
I used to have high cholesterol and high blood pressure, and now I don't anymore. And back to the big book. But this does not mean that we disregard human health measures. God had abundantly supplied this world with fine doctors, has abundantly supplied this world with fine doctors, psychologists, and practitioners of various kinds. Do not hesitate to take your health problems to such persons. Most of them give freely of themselves that their fellows may enjoy sound minds and bodies. Try to remember that though God has wrought miracles among us, we should never belittle a good doctor or psychiatrist. Their services are often indispensable in treating a newcomer and in following his case afterward. I couldn't hear anything from anybody about how I should lose weight. I never went to a doctor to discuss my problem of obesity. Over the years, doctors probably did mention to me that I should lose weight, but it went in one ear and out the other. After about nine months of being in OA and trying to use a commercial uh, weight loss program as a food plan, I believe God sent me to a nutritionist who was just right for me. I had been resisting what I'd been hearing in my meeting, that I should get a food plan from a nutritionist. A magical convergence of readiness, willingness, desperation, and open-mindedness coincided with a non-program friend telling me about a nutritionist who she found to be very helpful. I went to her and she gave me a food plan. She taught me about nutrition. She analyzed my daily food diaries and saw to it that I was getting the nutrients and calories that were right for my body. I met with her once a week for four months. By the time I was done, my weight and my BMI were optimal. My food plan was forever embedded in my brain. I developed new eating habits and discarded old ones. All this work prepared me to start working with a big book step sponsor. Eventually, I was able to get honest about all my binge foods and binge behaviors and put them down once and for all. Only then could I accept that I was powerless and that my life had become unmanageable. In the last paragraph, one of the many doctors who had the opportunity of reading this book in manuscript form told us that the use of sweets was often helpful, of course, depending upon a doctor's advice. He thought all alcoholics should constantly have chocolate available for its quick energy value at times of fatigue. He added that occasionally in the night, a vague craving arose which would be satisfied by candy. Many of us have noticed a tendency to eat sweets and have found this practice beneficial. Well, as I understand it, in our meetings, any discussion of specific food items we do or do not eat is considered to be an outside issue. Thus, I am going to refrain from comment on this particular paragraph. And with that, I pass. Thank you very much, Rebecca. And now to conclude this chapter and develop pages 134 and 135, I welcome Katie S. Good morning. This is Katie, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Virginia. A word about sex relations. When I read that, I thought, how did I get these two pages? I had to laugh. But um, then you go on in this paragraph, and it says, 
uh, it's talking about impotence, which you know I didn't I didn't deal with that, but um, only to enjoy in a few months a finer intimacy than ever. And it wasn't a few months; it was six years later uh, after I got into recovery that I met my husband. And because of my six years of recovery, I was able to have a relationship with him that, and still do, that I never. <laughs> in my wildest dreams thought would be possible to have, um, not just physically, but in every way. It's such a better relationship than the kind of relationship that I had in disease. Um, moving on to the next paragraph, the alcoholic may find it hard to reestablish friendly relations with his children. Um, I did not have children when I got married, I mean, not when I got um abstinent, but I did have two stepchildren when I got married, and so instantly I was dealing with relationships that they were young children, but my um, husband had an ex-wife who was close by and very involved, and so I have been so grateful that um, I have had daily contact with a sponsor and with a network and with sponsees for all these years. By this time, I'd been absent for over eight years or seven or eight years and, you know, I had to learn a whole new way of dealing with people. You know, when I first got abstinent, I was living uh, by myself in an apartment with other people and, you know, basically it was just me, myself, and I um, a lot of the time. I didn't have all these intimate relationships and so years into my recovery, I'm having to learn how to do things. And so I'm so grateful that I have, um, you know, a daily contact with my sponsor because she helps me to know how to act. I didn't learn how to act um, in the right way uh, because I started my disease at a very young age. My reaction to life was always to turn to the food. So I was very immature emotionally when I got into recovery. And I have learned how to um, to treat my family, to treat my husband, to treat my siblings, to treat my um, children and my stepchildren through working these steps. And um, my family of origin fits in best with this uh, paragraph, whether the family goes on a spiritual basis or not, the alcoholic member has to if he would recover. The others must be convinced of his new status beyond the shadow of the doubt. Seeing is believing to most families who have lived with a drinker. And, you know, it took the longest for my family of origin to really believe that this was it, that I really was going to stay recovered because they had heard me, you know, as others have shared, talk about going on a diet, you know, this is it, this is you know, the diet to end all diets. And, you know, I um, I waited several months before I even shared what I was doing, uh, even though it, I had stayed absent longer than I ever had in my life. I didn't just go and tell them all about it immediately because I knew that they would be skeptical. And even after I had been absent for a year or so, you know, I had family members confront me and say, you know, I know who you really are. I remember how you used to be. 
And, you know, it was as if they were just waiting for that shoe to drop, for me to go back to that old way of living. And, you know, I've never had to go back. Um, Does that mean I have perfect days every day? No. You know, sometimes um, I wish that my children could understand how uh, the kind of person that I used to be, then they might appreciate me more. But, you know, I'm not willing to go back there and make them live through the horror of a mother who is um, erratic. Fortunately, my husband understands because his first marriage was with a compulsive overeater who went up and down and up and down and up and down and was miserable most of the time because of uh, the you know, being unhappy with herself. And so he is very supportive of my program. Um, so I just know that um, I need the daily connection with people because people <laughs> were, you know, as has been said over and over by the panelists, six, the six people before me, you know, this is way... <laughs> This is about way more than food. You know, I, I put my food down 26 years ago, but now I am picking up a life that has to be managed through, um, you know, the lenses of recovery. And that means a daily commitment to my higher power because on my own, I am not going to do the right thing. On my own, I'm going to slip back into you know, the crazy thinking and the um, justifying bad behavior. Um, So looking at the text again, uh, these next two paragraphs talk about, you know, someone who was criticized by his family uh, because he smoked too much and he drank a lot of coffee. You know, I've had that experience where people have questioned, you know, my soda or, you know, do you drink diet soda? You, oh, you use equal? Well, you know, I don't know about that. And, you know, I am grateful that I have resigned from the debating society, that I have a barometer of, you know, if something is becoming, you know, that I use it too much over and over again, um, then I discuss it with my sponsor and I take it out of my food plan. If it's, um, you know, if I'm having wanting to have food that, breakfast that are really, you know, dinner foods, then, you know, I have to look at that. But I don't have to listen to what other people tell me and outside of the room. And I've learned to set boundaries and how to uh, relate to people that, you know, I'm not rude about it, but I don't make my food such uh, a big issue that everybody notices what I'm eating or not eating. You know, if someone pulls something out that I can't have, I don't talk about it. I don't um, act sad about it. And, you know, this in this instance, the guy got drunk. And, you know, thank goodness I don't, I don't have to eat over people's criticism of my uh, food. So I just would like to end with this last part because, to me, it's the best part of this whole chapter, it sums up, you know, how we live our life um, after we've put down the food and how we move on and move with our families. And, you know, people have talked about huge problems and 
obstacles that they've overcome, you know, living with uh, sick children, pounds and um, piles of debt, and, you know, just so many different things after years and years of living and causing wreckage in families. Um, and then you say, well, how can I uh, possibly live now with these same people that I had such a, a hard time with before? And it says, uh, we have three little mottos which are apropos. Here they are. First things first, live and let live. Easy does it. So these are things that I look at, you know, they go through my mind very often. You know, when I'm in a dilemma about how to handle a situation, you know, my kids are getting older now. I'm having to let them go and, you know, let them make their own mistakes or make their own decisions, make good decisions that I have nothing to do with. Um, you know, that's live and let live. I'm letting them live and I'm letting myself live. You know, I'm planning what my life is going to be like when I no longer have children in the house. You know, I'm planning uh, for the future so that I won't be uh, caught off guard when I'm an empty nester in a few years. And, you know, easy does it. I don't overdo today because if I do, then as someone else shared, you know, if I become a workaholic, if I become a roaring tornado through my house cleaning to the point of, you know, exhaustion or working late every night to please my boss, then, you know, my halt is off. And that's where easy does it comes in. And then, you know, there's a lot of times when I'm very worried about the future. And I think, what, you know, how's this going to work out? And how's that going to work out? And, well, what about this? And what about that? And, you know, the, uh, you know, the economy and the Obamacare and the whatever, all this stuff that's going on in life. And then I have to get back to first things first. You know, what do I need to do right now? Today, you know, it's kind of yucky weather here in Virginia, so we're not going anywhere. Um, you know, I've got a few things I need to do, but pretty much that's all I need to worry about today. Is there anything that is on in my head right now that I really have to worry about? That's what I have to go through on a daily basis when I get into uh, thinking about the future and thinking about um, the what-ifs, you know. And in the beginning, the what-ifs were, you know, how to, how to deal with an upcoming Christmas party with my food plan or how to deal with, you know, being at my parents' house on Christmas. You know, should I um, – I used to travel. I used to live in Colorado and then I had to fly home. You know, how am I going to get to the grocery store to get my food? I mean, those are the kind of things that, you know, I was concerned about. But then if I was still sitting in Colorado, I would say, okay, right now I don't need to worry about that. And so all these things, you know, this chapter is really about um, living the rest of our lives through this program. And, you know, if there's people that have had so much wreckage with their families, you know, it may not get better overnight. But give it a year. Give it several years. You know, after several years, I was able to reestablish a relationship with my father who, you know, it never was like I called him every week 
and told him what was going on. It just was never like that. But when he died in 2004, I had no regrets. I had no uh, feelings that I had done something wrong um, and left something undone. So, you know, I just um, encourage anyone who's on this line, if you only have, you know, a month of abstinence or six months or a year and you think, I'm never going to be debt-free like Marita said, or I'm never going to have, you know, happy children like Rebecca talked about, never is not in our vocabulary. It's one day at a time doing the next right thing, and it can happen to any of us. We are such people that would not normally mix, and we are the unlikely people to recover. Most of the people you hear on this line, people wrote off a long time ago before the miracle happened. But thank God, we kept coming back, and we didn't give up, or God didn't, didn't give up on us. Other people may have, but God didn't. And I'm truly grateful to be a part of this and that we do have a way out. That, you know, I don't have to, as someone else discussed, you know, I don't share things with my family. Um, I don't talk to my mother about my sister. I don't, you know, I just don't do that kind of stuff. I don't talk to my daughter about her brother. I talk to my network about these things and learn how to handle them appropriately. And with uh, working these steps on a daily basis, I've never found a situation that didn't, uh, I wasn't able to, you know, find a solution by doing what it says. So first things first, live and let live. Easy does it, and it works. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you very much, Katie. And thank you to all the panelists this morning, Robin B., Julie R., Marita, Marcella, Sharon R.S., Rebecca S., and Katie F., thank you for your time in helping us develop Chapter 9 of the Family Afterward. Contact numbers for speakers will be given after the conclusion of this recording. Phone numbers can also be retrieved off the member contact list, which can be found on our website. We're going to now open the floor up for approximately 20 minutes for any question and answers. All panelists are on the line, I believe, excluding Marcella. If you have a question, star one to unmute. Good morning. My name is Dawn, food addict compulsive overeater from Colorado. Hi, Dawn. Welcome. Go ahead. Uh, thank you, everybody. This meeting is like bedrock for me. It um, it helps me so much, and thank you all for sharing your recovery. I am wondering, what is the Big Book Dictionary? I have heard that before and attempted to find out what that is, and I haven't been able to find it. Uh, the Big Book Dictionary, there is a website. I'll offer that to you after the recording if you can hang on, Dawn. Thank you. Sure. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Any other questions this morning for our panelists regarding the family afterward? 
Good morning, this is Kathy in Boston. May I share? May I yes. yes, Kathy, good morning. Go ahead with your question. Thanks, Leah, for your service, and thank you to everybody on the panel. It has been so very special to listen to all of you today, someone who has become recovered, and I have a family, and um, trying on a daily basis to... Um, bring them in to my to a spiritual way of life or at least to be spiritually fit when I interact with them. And so one of the things I was thinking about um, as you were all talking is uh, what are the things that I can do um, to uh, bring um, my husband and my son uh, uh, a better understanding of what I, who I am and what I've experienced. Now, I've made amends to each of them. I, they don't seem at all interested in going to an open meeting with me. And I, I tell myself it doesn't matter <clears throat> as long as I'm living this way of life doesn't matter how much they understand or don't understand. My husband is high on my going to meetings because he sees how much better I am when I consistently work my program. But I was just curious if any of you have uh, made conscious decisions to um, bring your close family members into a better understanding of your program. And I'll listen. Thank you, Kathy. Any panelists like to speak to that? Hi, this is Julie. Um, I could just share my experience. Um, I have been in and out of OA since 81. So, you know, my family has, has seen me thin, fat, thin, fat, not recovered, thin, fat, etc. And when I started to live my life through the eyes and the will of my creator, they started to notice. Uh, yeah, of course, the weight loss. We all know that's great. But um, it's what I do. It's my prayer. It's my meditation. It's me being an example. It's answering the phone, talking to somebody who is um, needing some support. So it's just by my actions. And my husband has listened to a meeting. Um, he's heard me share. and he's. Um, but that's at his time. Uh, early on, I wanted to say, come, come, come. You've got to do it. You've got to do it now. And that didn't work because I wasn't, I wasn't living a program of recovery. I was uh, still in the self. So it's just by example. My family has seen me change repeatedly time after time, not react the way I used to. And they ask questions. Um, right right now, um, you know, my husband knows I've been on a meeting for an hour or so. And, you know, he's come in and out and just kind of listened to me talk. So, you know, it'll happen on their time. Just keep on working and showing what this program has done for you. Thanks. Thank you, Julie. Anyone else like to comment, respond to Kathy's question? This is Rebecca. Go ahead, Rebecca. Thanks. This is Robin. Um, Kathy, I'd like Robin, to comment. Robin, hold on one second, darling. Oh, okay. Rebecca sure. stepped in, and then we'll we'll get back to you, Robin. 
Thank yep. you, Leah and Robin and Kathy for the question. Um, well, when I was um, looking at the fact that I'd be sharing on this chapter, the family afterward, and was reading it with very close scrutiny, it dawned on me that I really wasn't sure what my family thought of the work I'd been doing and how it affected their lives. And so I brought it up. Luckily, um, we were all home for the holiday, and um, I had an opportunity to do that. I'd say God gave me that opportunity. And so um, my daughter, who I rarely see anymore, um, was able to um, express, you know, she was glad that I opened the door to have this discussion, and she asked me, well, frankly, I don't understand. What does your losing weight and the way you eat have to do with having less stress in your life, for instance? I don't get it. And um, why can't you just give yourself credit where credit is due for um, the accomplishments you've made with your body and your health and your way of eating instead of giving it over to God, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, it led to a fantastic conversation, all four of us together in the kitchen. Um, the older one was like, yeah, yeah, she's right, you know, kind of egging her on, you know, and saying what she'd been thinking maybe all along. And my husband stepped up and backed me up and said, you guys don't get it. Things are really different now. It's it's like over the top better, and it's the work Mom's doing in this program that's making the difference. And you know, there's more and more that went on, but um, you know, just asking them and opening up a dialogue about it made a big difference for us. And um, as far as the Big Book Dictionary goes. Um, Don, feel free to call me after the meeting if you want, and I can tell you about it. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Rebecca. Robin, your turn. Hi, Kathy. Um, I One of the things that comes to my mind uh, when you ask this question is how hidden away I'd been for so many years. And that was what I kind of wanted to do when I first got into this whole way of life um, because I was really holding it so close to me. I didn't want anything to jeopardize it or take it away. And I slowly started opening up to my family. And by that, I mean I wasn't hiding anymore. I was talking on the phone with people. Um, you know, I wasn't hiding what I was doing. The, a really good example of this for me was we had a a young boy come to live with us for a couple of years, and he came from a seriously alcoholic home, and he had no interest in going to Alateen, yet um, he heard me say the serenity prayer three times every morning as I um, talked to my sponsees. And I was really careful to, you know, not say anything personal about them while I, you know, that he could, that he could overhear, that he could hear. But I think that, you know, for me, that's been more, uh, it's been, um, it's it's you know it's not promotion for me it's this is the way my life is now welcome into it you know come come witness what's happening to me um when i tried to beat people over the head with that stick it didn't work in early recovery for me uh you know but as i learned how to just have a gentle manner about it and be as open as i could be in around the people that i love 
I started noticing all kinds of things starting to happen to them. They started asking me questions about their issues. Mom, what would you do if you were in this situation? You know, what would your program tell you to do? Tell me about your higher power because I'm feeling empty. And that's been an awesome thing to to watch happen in my family. So with that, I'll pass. Thank you very much, Robin. Thank you, Kathy, for the question. Anyone else? Thanks, everyone. Our pleasure. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. Sure. Um, This is Lisa in California. I was wondering, do any of your family members attend OAnon, or have you recommended it to them? Thank you for the question. Any panelists like to respond? Um, This is Julie, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. You know, my husband tried that once. Unfortunately, it was um, sharing a lot of of the mess and not the message. So, um, and I don't even think there is Owenon in Northern California anymore. But he did attend a couple of meetings and um, he learned a lot. Thank you. Anyone else have any experience with that? This is Marita from Virginia. Go ahead, Marita. Um, I don't. I, I I've never heard of this before. So um, this our family doesn't uh, doesn't do that. We have Al-Anon in this area, but I don't think there's an Olanon, O-Anon, O-Anon in this area. Um, I did want to say though that um, when I was first listening to the um, the conference bridges in the morning, um, my I, I I guess at one point when I was sharing with my sponsor, I explained to her that I um, kept it on speakerphone in my kitchen while I was doing work and stuff because uh, that's how I was able to do two things at once. And she was like, oh, I don't think you should have it on speakerphone because you'll be imposing this on your family. And so I was like, oh, I didn't realize that was going to be a problem. So I, t- I stopped. I-, I turned it off. And my husband came into the room and he was like, well, Where's the meeting? What's going on? And he wanted to hear it. <laughs> he wanted to hear it. Um, so I, I, I love that, that these guys, you know, it's no, it's a message for everyone. It's not just for us. And uh, so thanks for letting me share. I pass. Thank you very much for that. Any other questions this morning? Hi, this is Sheila H. from New York. Hi, Sheila. Your turn. Go ahead. Thank you. First of all, I want to thank everyone. It was absolutely a wonderful, wonderful message that I heard this morning. I just heard a little bit of everything I needed to be reminded of especially about taking care of yourself. It reminded me about putting the oxygen on yourself before you can help your family members, and I thank you for that. I think it was KDS who said that my question is about the debate to society, um, how she managed to remove or disconnect herself from the debate society of what she was doing and not doing and how she was practicing her program or her plan, if that can be addressed. I'd appreciate it. Thank you. 
This is Katie. Um, well, I, fa I found that people were really, uh, I used to make announcements about my diets all the time. And so, you know, that really was opening myself up for uh, people noticing what I was doing. And then as I was losing weight um, and recovering and working the steps and changing <laughs> from being so self-centered to being other-centered, um, you know, I stopped. I, I, I learned to practice my own anonymity is the way I like to put it. You know, I don't tell everybody on the planet that I'm in OA and that I have an eating disorder and that I have to follow a food plan. Um, but if it does come up, now that I've been recovered for so many years, you know, that kind of ends the conversation <laughs> because most people have not, um, you know, a lot of people lose weight. Celebrities, you know, are on TV and they, I lost, you know, they lost 100 pounds, they lost 60 pounds, they lost whatever. But then, you know, five years later, what's, what's the story? I mean, you don't hear about them or you see them on, you know, Star Magazine and they've gained it all back. Um, so once I got past the point where I had, could say, you know, I've maintained a 70-pound weight loss for two years, for five years, for 10 years, for 25 years, you know, they don't argue with me. But I think it's more my posture and my... Um, indifference about the food that I don't I don't it's obvious that I don't care that I can't eat you know pumpkin pie and you know candy canes and all this stuff that's, that's out right now you know the more neutral I am about the food then the less people um, are inclined to want to uh, debate with me about it you know, I, I I think it's just a confidence that I have gained because of working this program. <laughs> but, you know, if you have a, a more specific question, I'm happy to answer it or talk with you on the phone. Pass. Thank you. Thank you, Sheila, for the question. Any other questions before we wrap up this morning? This is Susan. Susan. I was waiting for you, Susan. Go ahead. <laughs> I can count on Susan for a question. Good morning, Leah. Thanks so much for your service and everyone else, all the speakers. I wanted to extend an invitation to any of the speakers. I'll extend it in the form of a question whose pages might not have lent themselves to them sharing a specific story in the context of their relationships with others that illustrates what it's like to be a recovered woman today and how that shows up in relationships. Some, if not all of you, may have um, already covered it to the extent that you wanted to, but if not, just wanted to put that out there. I thought that I, for one, and the group as a whole might benefit from it. Thanks so much. Thank you, Susan. This is Katie. Go right ahead, Katie. Okay, well, after one year of abstinence, my one sister got abstinent and stayed abstinent for 10 years. After uh, five years of abstinence, Two of my other two sisters and my mother got abstinent, and they all, between them, got down to maintenance weight, one losing over 100 pounds 
others 70, 80, 90 pounds. And after about, but they didn't embrace the 12 steps. They didn't embrace the whole program. And so after a time, and as of now, every single one of them are back to their highest weight or higher. And I've had to let go of that. <laughs> so I don't want anyone to think that, you know, because I've, I'm asking for 26 years that I have the magic answer for anybody. You know, it's very humbling and it's very sad to me that it has not translated in my own family. You know, it was, it was, uh, it was fun those years when we were all abstinent. <laughs> and now we're back to, you know, eating family meals at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I have to bring my food and eat my snack while they're eating Thanksgiving dinner and all of that stuff. And I, you know, I have told them everything I know to tell them. This program is not me. <laughs> it is not me. It is higher power. And I pray for them, and I am available to them, and I do believe that they ask me for um, advice <laughs> on relationship issues. But they do not ask me about food. And, you know, that is how... <laughs> how it is in my life today. Now, you know, I'm married and I don't live next door to them, so it's not like I'm eating meals with them daily, but, um, you know, it was really nice for a few years, but, but unless people truly embrace the program, it doesn't last. And, you know, a diet with group support only lasts for a certain period. And then when push comes to shove, you know, life gets in the way. You know, through this program, through uh, being a part of a vision for you and studying the big book so intently, I have come to the conclusion that I don't even know if they're compulsive overeaters. You know, maybe they're not. I don't think they're as critical level as I am. And so I have stopped judging them. I don't feel the need to stare at them when they're eating. You know, it's just become a non-issue. Of course, I'm available to them if they would ever want to talk to me. I have shared the link to this to the website. I have told them about the meeting. I've told them the phone numbers. I've invited them to special speakers. I've done all those things. But, you know, this meeting has been going on for a year and a half. I don't do that every week. And, you know, so in between, I live my program and my family <laughs> coexists. And I am not responsible for them. So I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but that's my experience. Thanks. Thank you, Katie. Any other speaker like Sharon? you? Yes, Sharon, go right ahead. Yes, thank you for the question. I, it occurs to me that one of the things that I realized in my, that has happened in my recovery is with my, my, birth family, my family of origin, is that, first of all, when I turned 18, I hightailed it out of there, and I never looked back, and my mother was the one that always had to call me and contact me, and I I just really wanted to get away from them because I felt like I was the victim in my family. I felt like I was the outsider, the outcast. And so I just didn't 
it was too painful for me to deal with them. And so I just wanted to stay away. Um, In recovery, I've had to look at my part. I've had to accept my responsibility. I've had to forgive, forgive and move on. I've had to see that everyone is flawed. Everyone is spiritually ill in some way. And not just me. They were having their own hurts and pains. And my parents are all flawed and hurting in many ways and and trying to raise us to the best of their ability. And I realized that they have really done the best they can. And so I reunited with that, my family of origin, and and really started to, to, to be in that relationship, but yet I lived a distance from them. But now as my parents are, are older and we're dealing with their transition, and I've been, I'm committed to helping be of service as much as I can from where I'm at. And also in my personal life, as I, in my recovery life, I am, I am submitting to God, and God is my director, my leader, my guide. And I'm saying, God, show me whatever your will is for me. I'm willing to do that. What is the role that you have for me to play in life? Now, as I said earlier, I want to be living out there in the big world, creating change, and, and I want to be doing something significant, leaving my mark. But God has called me here. And, and then, to my chagrin, God has called me to my family of origin, the place that gave me so much pain. And now I have to go back. And I'm not even the oldest child, but I'm the recovered child. So in my recovery, and, and all of a sudden, I am the one that has the responsibility for for looking out for my parents' finances, for looking over these great things that I feel like, oh, my gosh, here's another responsibility that I have to have. I got enough because I've got things to do, and I don't want another responsibility. But I sit here and I center in myself and recognize that in my relationship with my higher power, this is what I'm called to do, and I gladly do it. And I pray, God, give me strength to do it to the, to the utmost. And I want to also say because of my being willing to, to be in relationship and, and reunite with my family, there has been great recovery there and with my siblings and, and who were addicts. I think my parents just raised a whole herd of addicts and they're, they don't seem to have been addicts, but they raised addicts, go figure. But because of my commitment to my recovery, my siblings have gotten their own recovery. And so I can already see, by the grace of God, the benefit of my centering in my family and and being of love and service there. And so although I don't see the great benefit of, of me taking on another responsibility, I know that God has a purpose and a plan for it. And so I embrace it and I pray for God to help me to do it to the to the best of my ability. And with that I pass. 
Thank you very much, Sharon R.S., and thank you, Susan, for the question. Thank you again to all our panelists this morning, Robin, Julie, Marita, Marcella, Sharon, Rebecca, and Katie. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning and attended the meeting. I'm going to close up this morning the way that A Vision for You always ends their meetings, and that's with the reading from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.